This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making real ingredients for real athletes looking to step up their nutrition. Today, it's Red Bulgur, a Middle Eastern cereal made from several different species of wheat that's cracked and parboiled, so it doesn't need to be cooked. Just soak it in water, and it's ready to go. Once you've done that, you can add it to salads, make a bulgur pilaf, add it to meatballs, or make bulgur burgers, and say that quickly over and over to impress your friends with your enunciation. You can also replace rice with bulgur in a lot of recipes to increase the protein and fiber content of your meal, or mix it in with oatmeal to add a nutty flavor and nutritional punch to your breakfast. Basically, if you're looking for a meal plan that packs maximum nutrition into minimum calories, and that's pretty much the definition of a high-performance diet, bulgur is a good place to start. Head over to bobsredmill.com outside and enter for a chance to win some fun Bob's Red Milk goodies, a subscription to Outside, a book from our collection, and a brand new backpack. One winner will be selected at random each month. That's bobsredmill.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. The end of summer, every year, is rough. But two years ago, for the search and rescue community in the Pacific Northwest, it came as a kind of relief. Where normally body recoveries make up a small percentage of their missions, that year, they had had a lot. Usually what would happen is we would have a recovery and then, you know, six, eight, ten missions and a recovery, six, eight, ten missions and a recovery. Uh, we had, um, I think we had 14 recoveries in a nine week period, something like that. It was some, so just, just, yeah. And some of them were like, it was literally, uh, you know, back to back, uh, recovery missions, which was very, very highly unusual. This is Marcel Rodriguez of Pacific Northwest search and rescue. He was around that summer and watched both veterans and newbies and himself struggle with the volume and intensity of the rescues they were on. Um, you know, one of the, the statistics that, uh, comes out of, uh, that they have for first responders is that, fire, police, you know, EMS, people who are doing search and rescue full-time that just inherently have a 10 to 15 year reduced life expectancy because of the, you know, and, and that goes into all of the chronic stress that they carry throughout their careers, which then just, it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and then it manifests itself in, you know, diabetes and hypertension and, and heart disease and all of these different things that end up, um, you know, that end up killing people much earlier than they should. So Marcel decided to do something about it and started figuring out ways that he could make the rescue community more resilient. And part of his multi-pronged approach is a podcast called Rescuer MBS, a play on the rating that climbing equipment gets for its minimum breaking strength. We really, we have no concept of our own minimum breaking strength. And so what we end up doing is we, we only discover what it was when we've passed it and when we've, we've had an injury, um, you know, because we've kept things bottled up and we've, um, you know, and we haven't processed things correctly and we've done too many things that are seen too many things without processing them correctly and, and haven't done the self-care and the things that we do. Last week on the podcast, we replayed the story of the time I broke my leg and had to be rescued by helicopter. Or as we refer to it at my house, the canyon thing, which necessitated some mental self-care during and ever since. Marcel was on that rescue, and a few weeks ago asked me to be on Rescuer MBS, looking back two years later at what I went through. So this week, I just want to play that conversation for you, both as a kind of update on my story, and if you are in the search and rescue community, an introduction to the fact that there are people and groups out there working to make the job easier to deal with. You know, one of the things I'll kind of, you know, I'll bring people together after a bad mission. I'll just say, you know, like, you know, some things leave a mark because they should. You know, some of the stuff that we see just isn't the kind of stuff that you should be able to shake off. And you do need to talk about it and you do need to address it because it's just not, um, you know, it, there is no context for it. You know, there's no, there's no world where that's right. Here's that episode. 
Thank you for being here. I appreciate your coming today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'd also like to thank you for your podcast. It was very fascinating for me to see things going on from the other side of a rescue. Uh, and also just to thank you for being a, being that vulnerable and having that, putting that out there, because I think it's really super important just for people to be able to see that type of thing coming through, um, through your mindset as you go through step by step. I think that was just both a, a fascinating look at it, but also just a, a, you know, a very brave and vulnerable look. So I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. So for, for the people who haven't yet heard your podcast and will immediately do so after we, uh, after they finish this one, could you maybe just give us a, an overview of, of what happened with you? Sure. Um, so if you haven't heard the story, what you need to know is that there's a there's a canyon near where I live in Portland that I go down almost every year. This was the fourth year or maybe third year. It's been a while now uh, that, that we were going down. And there's a spot. Uh, it's the second to last waterfall. You go around the second to last waterfall. And then to get back into the river, there's a spot where you jump from about 15, 20 feet up. The last several times I'd been down the river you jump in there and swim to the next waterfall and it's great this time I jumped in and I don't know if I jumped somewhere different if a rock or a log had moved downstream but the water was only a few feet or inches deep and I broke my leg broke my fibula uh, and it, so it was just me my brother-in-law and then his brother uh, who are both from Germany uh, basically uh, and I, I was a patient in the worst spot that I could design or think of to be uh, to, to break your leg. So I was between a 60-ish foot waterfall and a 40-foot waterfall in about a 100-yard stretch of flat. And over the course of 21 hours, there was a rescue attempt or res rescue effort uh, to get me from where I was back up to, to civilization. Um, I had to ended up having to repel the last waterfall and then crawl and swim downstream about another half mile or mile. At that point is where uh, EMS was coming upstream, and then we connected, and then there was a major rescue effort to get me. You know, at that point we connected, but we were still at the bottom of a seven thirteen hundred foot. Uh, oh wow! From the trailhead. Okay, yeah. I was gonna say seven hundred feet, no, no, but I was at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so a, a, a significant canyon wall between between me and the trail, and the, basically, you know, that was about I want to say seven or eight hours in, maybe nine, and then it was another eleven, twelve, thirteen hours to to get of of trying to get me up that cliff, and then it was I was eventually evacuated by helicopter. Yeah, it was definitely, I, I mean, from, from the perspective of the rescuer, it was definitely an epic rescue. And I would echo that you were probably in the worst spot that we would ever want to have you yeah. to, uh, yeah. to have to pull you out. But the thing that fascinated me in listening to that, and especially in the context of looking at it from the, the concept of stress injuries and psychological first aid, is that you, you just instinctively did so many things as I, you know, I just kind of went through as a list of saying, the, the, you know, these actions that you were taking as you went through that were the kind of things that, you know, we would hope that rescuers are doing to, to try to bring calm, bring grounding, bring hope, you know, all of these things that, that we look at that really support really good psychological first aid to a subject, but you were kind of instinctively doing those on your, on your own. The question that I had was, where, where did that come from with you? What, where, what is it in your experience or in your past that, that led you down the path or, or that brought you to those actions what, in, in what sounded like a very instinctive way? Yeah. I mean, I think it sounds instinctive, but I, you know, for the last, at that point for two years, three years, maybe I had been making, I'd been reporting and doing survival stories for the podcast. So the things that I was experiencing, I had corollaries to in the shows that I had done so I have I had I guess I mean you say instinctively but for me it was very conscious like I was mm -hmm. thinking about interviews that I had done and places like like people that I had talked to and what their decisions had been and what had worked or what hadn't worked I'd read Deep Survival uh, the Lawrence Gonzalez book mm, sure and then I mean the other thing was that I knew almost as soon as it was happening that this was going to be a podcast episode or a <laughs> magazine story <laughs> and so almost immediately i was thinking of it in terms of a narrative sure in terms of okay this is what 
this is, you know, here we have this inciting incident, this broken leg, and, like, how do things progress from there? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really useful to think of what's happening in terms of a narrative, of, of thinking of, like, who you're going to talk to this, talk to about this, what you're going through. It also, it, like, removes it a little bit from your immediate experience. And this can be a, a, both a good and a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like, in some ways you're less present the more you're thinking about something in terms of how you're going to talk about it later. You know, just, we, we talk about this in terms of Instagram or Facebook sure. or like, you know, you're, if you're constantly photographing something with your phone or recording something with your phone, you're not really there. You're not really experiencing something, but I think there's actually some advantages to that from a psychological, on, like on a mental level. Yeah. And I, th- I think, but what, what I, what, I mean, what I got from your narrative of it was that that you didn't, I mean, certainly the actions you're taking, it didn't sound like you checked out. I mean, yeah. as opposed to like that, that sounds like a very powerful mechanism of the the narrative or kind of um, t- trying to, you know, it, it would be contextualizing it in a way that it's like you're almost trying to process it in, in you know, in line rather yeah. than waiting until afterwards. Yeah, totally. um, So that's one of the things that I think is uh, something that people may not fully appreciate and what I think it it's kind of brings out with, with your experience is that that these are things that we have some kind of conscious control over that and I think you have these uh, you know great phrases in there where you say like I you know I made a really conscious decision not to lose it. Mm-hmm. Like that's a the fact that we can do that, the fact that we have that sort of that sort of agency or that sort of control is uh you know, I think that's very powerful, and especially as we mostly look at this as how does this work with other people, but then when you flip that around to, you know, what happens when it's me that I'm the subject? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that 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 thing of being able to consciously do that, that's a really, that's, I think that's a really super powerful message in all this. So, so the, I think the, the thing that helped me the most, and this, this came into play once before in my life, I went to New Orleans after Katrina, and just sort of showed up, volunteered. It was working with uh, other other folks from my school, and we just shoveled people's stuff onto the curb, basically. Like we were mucking out homes, tearing down, you know, getting them down to the studs. And it was it was mentally quite difficult, just seeing everybody's kind of lives completely unended, upended. We never met the people whose houses we were working on. We didn't know where they were, if they had lived or died or if they'd been relocated. But you like got to see all their stuff. You found their poetry that was in the closet and, you know, stuff they hid in the walls and everything. And, And a lot of the other people in my group had trouble with that, like really serious. I mean, if you think through the people several of them have had just issues since then. I came back from that experience and spent two weeks writing about it. Just Mm. an article. I was trying to be a writer. I was still in college. And I just processed that very consciously, like turned it into a piece of written work. And, you know, I didn't have the same kind of trouble with that experience that some of my collaborators had. And so I kind of took the same approach on on this, like this was something that was incredibly de- destabilizing. It was life-changing, life-upending. And, you know, I knew I was going to make a podcast about it. I knew I was going to write about it. And so I just spent, like, I kind of gave myself extra time, really focused on it as a story. Like, you know, for one, it's important to me and it's personal. But two, like, I, I kind of just carved out as much time as it needed to tell. And what I think is going on is like the mechanism of, taking something that you remember viscerally inside and that you picture and turning that into a story that you tell every time you tell that story or every time that you, um, transforms it in a way, like the story becomes instead of this thing that happened to me, it becomes a story that I tell and a story that you tell is not nearly as, as traumatic as something that happened to you. It makes, it just sort of neuters the experience in a way. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it, in like, if you take the teeth off of something, it's not going to haunt you as bad. An interesting corollary to that is that as responders, we, we almost have the opposite, which is yeah. one, a lot of times we just have to get to the next rescue. We have to move on. We have to keep functioning. And then we know that most of the time, these are stories we're never going to tell. Yeah. Um, you know, either because of the circumstances or because the nature of them are just such that we 
we don't want to share them with other people around us because we don't want to damage them or or there are situations where a lot of times you know people don't want to model that vulnerability to each other you know yeah. because we have this sort of archetype as a rescuer that we're you know nothing bothers me and i can just shake all this stuff off i i think that lack of ability to process like you had in that very, very specific way and kind of in a real analytical way that can kind of work the other way. So I, I can really see where that would be something that could be really a powerful way of, of dealing with that. And especially, it sounds like you did it you know, pretty much right after that. Yeah. I, I actually, I think I started writing as soon as the cast came off. <laughs> so there was, a, there was, you know, six weeks in there where I wasn't right. not, not, not as they closed the helicopter door. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was writing in my head the whole time, like even, <laughs> even as it was happening. <laughs> the, um, in your narrative, the, you know, as this kind of unfolds, there's, there's some very specific sections of this. So, you know, you have your, you have your pre-injury, you have your, up, up to that point, you have your injury, you have this period where you're sitting, you know, on the, at the top of the waterfall and kind of thinking, okay, well, things are going to, things are going to get better. It should only be a couple of hours, you know, helicopters should be coming. And then, you know, at some point you, you kind of say, this isn't working Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to kind of change this up a little bit. You know, I need to, I need to do that. And, and so you make this pretty big decision that you're going to rappel down the waterfall. Your, you know, your foot's pointing off in the wrong direction and, you know, your, your partner is not terribly experienced in these things. And, and when you, when you think back on that and that, that sort of, you know, making that decision where, where, you know, you kind of, it sounds like, you know, as you talk about it, you're kind of going into this part where it's maybe getting a little dark where you're like, this isn't this isn't playing out like it should be playing yeah and then that point where you say okay you know what i'm going to take this really specific action to make this situation better mm. um, and just if if you have any thoughts on like where how that how that went you know that transition from that kind of being in a little bit of a maybe starting to go down into the hole and then kind of coming up and and taking this very specific action that that was you know by all means a, a pretty you know, a pretty radical action uh, yeah. for someone in, in, in your condition, but, but that, you know, knowing that that's really going to move the ball forward on your rescue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about this in the piece a little bit, but I, I just got scared. I didn't want to spend the night on this little ledge rock platform thing that we were on, or, you know, it's the bank, but it's a mm-hmm. flat piece of rock. So I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to remove a barrier there was also there was a a section from a book that I had read, uh, you know, sort of in service of all the sort of survival stories that I'd been working on. Uh, the book is The Evil Hours. It's it's kind of like uh, memoir plus just sort of exploration of the various forms of PTSD and their and their treatments. And there was a there was a section that I remembered that was basically explaining how survivors who had had an active role in their rescue had much fewer symptoms of post-traumatic stress than people who were in a, in a, you know, seemingly similar situation, but had nothing they could do or were, you know, I think the example in the book is like, if someone is in an earthquake and they gather all their things and their little brother and get them out of there and, and, and rescue somebody, that person is probably on average going to be less traumatized than someone who the earthquake starts, a bookcase pins them to the ground and they aren't hurt, but they're just stuck under a, a bookcase the whole time. And so I was truly thinking like, what can I do that's going to give me some agency in this rescue? But isn't irresponsible Mm -hmm. and the i mean i've had friends of mine tell me that they were when they listen to the story they're mad at me when i decide to rappel down the waterfall because they know that's not what i you know air quotes should should do none of the rescuers would agree with that i mean we would all prefer you to rappel down the water yeah (laughs) well because i was so (laughs) hard to get to because yeah it would have been we we probably wouldn't have even been able to attempt it until day until daylight yeah um, given if you were up on the waterfall because yeah but conventional wisdom is like you stay put, you wait for rescue. And yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, if I could do it all again, I would have started climbing or sort of started crawling out as soon as I got hurt. And, you know, I know I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. I know exactly where I have to go. I would just have started going, sent people ahead of me and kept somebody with me the whole time. Anyway, that's what I would do again if I, you know, I didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know how hard it was going to be to get me out of the bottom of the canyon once I was there. 
but yeah, I, so I was looking for things that I could that I could reasonably do to help myself, but without kind of making your job harder, making rescuers job harder. And that was the kind of, you know, once it started to get dark, once I realized no one was going to be able to get there before dark, it became like the the math just changed on whether or not to do the repel. Yeah, I think I mean that you you have this just beautiful phrasing on this where you 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 know you talk about how the line between you and civilization had just gotten thicker. Mm. And and I think that the thing that just strikes me as as so amazing about that statement is that that is absolutely what we're trying to do from the minute we get to you until the minute you know you're safe somewhere else is to try to thicken that line and that's really a lot of what the psychological first aid is all about and i think Mm -hmm. that concept of self-efficacy one of the things that we it's very easy in a especially in a very technical rescue like yours to kind of just you know especially where the patient's relatively stable to kind of turn them into cordwood and make it a logistical problem. Yeah. And, uh, because it, because there is a very huge logistical problem. Um, you know, when I think about that, that night, you know, we had five pitches of, you know, 300 plus feet each and, you know, people up and down, you know, the, 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 the slope all the way, you know, and coordinating things all over the place. But I think, you know, that, that thing of really looking for us, it's really about one of the things is, is to involve, the subject in that rescue and to really give them meaningful tasks that they can do, even if it's seemingly minor things. But yeah, I think that's, that's something a lot of people struggle with because we, we, we practice all the skills of rescue and the things that we need to do from a technical perspective and from a technical medical perspective. And, you know, we have to really make sure that we don't let the, the human side of it fall by the wayside. Yeah. You know, and so I think that that's a really, uh, it, it, again, it's really interesting to see you applying that to yourself and, and being able to gain from that. Yeah. Yeah. There was one, just a thought I had on the drive over here was like, you know, uh, you, you told me you were going to be asking about just various things people would do. And, you know, I'm thinking about this kind of like self-efficacy thing there, the one, I, I don't have a whole lot of like complaints or changes or things that I think should have been done differently. But one thing that I think a lot of rescuers could do in most rescue situations is just, and, and could, that could have, could have done for me, is just ask me about the area. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm here on purpose, either, you know, unless I'm just a complete Yahoo, like, I know a little bit about the terrain. And I don't think, I don't think we ever talked, I mean, maybe it's lost in a fentanyl haze. Um, and this was totally, <laughs> totally covered, but, um, I don't, I don't remember having a conversation about sort of what I thought the easiest escape route would be, or, you know, had I done this before, where were we going, you know, sure. how were we going to get out if we had, had been in charge of getting ourselves out? So that's just one thing is like, if the person is there on purpose, they probably know they may, and they may have sure. different thoughts on where to go, you know, than, than you have as someone coming in and looking at a map and. I'm sure you practice these things, but it, it, it not only you may get some actual information, but also it makes the person feel like they're contributing. Sure. Even if, even if you say, okay, great. And then completely. Forget well, and again, that's part of that whole self-efficacy, which is, you know, what we try to do is bring you onto the rescue team. So yeah. it's not like we're doing this to you or we're doing this for you. We're all doing this together. Yeah. And, and I think that that is a, a really good one. I know we had talked about all sorts of different things about, you know, could we float you out or could we do different things and, you know, looked at a lot of different possibilities. But the, you know, I, I think that is, you know, as you say, a lot of times we get people who are very knowledgeable about an area who, who are there for a reason and they know the way out. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we don't, but, but I think that's a real, again, one of those things that we have to really force ourselves to really bring that into, you know, into the, the entire rescue and understand that the, the subject is, is part of the rescue team. You know, yeah. they're, they're not just the reason we're out there. So earlier we heard about bulgur, the staple grain of the Middle East, which you can add to oatmeal or make into a delicious breakfast bulgur bowl. You just boil a half cup of bulgur and a half cup of millet in two cups of water for 15 to 20 minutes. Then saute some veggies and cook two eggs, however you want. Add sea salt, black pepper, soy sauce, and an avocado, and you've got the most power-packed, densely nutritious breakfast known to the modern world. And it all starts with ancient grains. Find out more at bobsredmill.com, and while you're there, remember to enter to win prizes from outside. 
That's bobsredmill.com slash outside. With, you talk about when, you know, when you finally see the headlamps coming at you and you kind of have this big flood of emotion and this uh, thankfulness and relief and this ability where now you can say, okay, I'm allowed to be scared because, because, you know, it's kind of coming to an end you think <laughs> yeah at that point yeah. <laughs> i was like great i'm gonna get out of here yeah, right now beer. um <laughs> the uh in that time where you know you made that first contact and then and then as it kind of went through you know what were the things that as you as you kind of had that phase shift from all you to now knowing that there's 30 plus people all involved in this thing uh, kind of all working to get you out what were the kind of things that happened in that transition that 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 you feel were helpful or that you feel settled you or maybe started to make that transition from all you to somebody else? Yeah, yeah, man. The specifics of that. So the initial the initial contact was like this huge flood of relief, and then it you know we had a two or three hour sort of waiting period right then where I got a jacket like basic kind of like stuff to make me more comfortable the paramedic did kind of an assessment of my leg and was mostly like i remember i remember this quote really well he's just like i don't think i'm gonna touch it it looks really good like (laughs) we're you know it's lined up it's i'm just gonna splint it where it is like i don't need to take that shit off this is after the uh after the i think you you had said it was it was pretty kind of pretty hideously articulated and then, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. as you were moving in the water it sort of snapped it back into place or ish into place no it was perfect i mean it, oh, right the on. river reset it and it was nice. you know right lined up <laughs> they didn't touch it at the hospital they didn't touch it nice. uh the robert the paramedic wasn't yeah he was he made the totally right call not to yeah. sort of mess with it more you know we got we got comfortable and i think like the one of the biggest things was like expectation management so it wasn't like there was a very, I mean, in Robert, I mean, you, you yeah. know him, I'm assuming sure. he's become a friend of mine ever since then. He did an incredible job and like won an award for this rescue. And he did, he did this thing of both like giving me hope, but also setting realistic expectations. So it was kind of like, I, like the example in my case was there's a chance we'll get a helicopter right now. And like, we'll be out of here in an hour. And whether or not that was true, it was great to hear. Like it gave me this sort of this, it, it moved the finish line much closer potentially. And he's like, but it's really hard to get a helicopter. And then he sort of outlined all of these different things, these reasons why it might not happen. So I was like, okay, the finish line is both, you know, an hour from now and indefinitely in the future. So I'm like both sort of buoyed and you know, my, my expectations are maybe a little more realistic um, than if they said, you know, let's get you out of here. Like, get to the chopper here we go um <laughs> if only <laughs> yeah yeah so that mentally was really really helpful and then i mean the other thing was just like he and i just had a really good rapport almost from the start like i, I kind of sheepishly told him that like i work for outside magazine i'm you know like he's like oh cool i you know i read that magazine or i have read that magazine and we just started a conversation and the conversation just kept going Every once in a while, we would sort of stop talking and he'd do a medical thing. The The EMT that was with him was like very much taking his cue from him and like staying out of it. Like he, he sort of like let me and, and Robert sort of bond in this way. And he was there to support, but he wasn't like we, we didn't bond in the same way because he was a little bit in the shadows, a little bit just sort of like watching, looking, helping where he could. And he kind of like let me establish this relationship with, with Robert, who was going to be the, the central rescuer. Well, and, the, and that grounding is so important. I think the, um, you know, one of the things that, it, that, that I think a lot of times, you know, again, as we talked about there, there's, you know, we learn all the, the, the technical stuff. We learn all the medical stuff. You know, we learn our patient assessment systems and those are all great for doing the task but they don't make the connection. And in a lot of these things, just making that connection turns it from 
you know, from, from a, a, what could be someone's worst day into, you know, basically a slightly miserable camp out with your buddies. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. We, we, we always kind of, we always joke around is that, you know, one of the things we like to do first is, you know, start a big fire and get hot drinks going because how bad can it be if you're drinking hot cocoa? Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I think that that goes to the, you know, the concept that one of the big things that we're trying to do is to kind of put a real definitive end to that phase of your, you know, of your incident to kind of say, Mm -hmm. okay, yes, it was really terrible up to this point. Now we're with you. Now things are stable. You know, we're not done, but you know, we're in a different phase now and and you're not alone. Yeah. And, and, and help us out in, in getting you out. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of, one of the things as you, as you look, reflect back on this, because this was two years ago, almost uh, almost two years ago, what positives did you take from it? At the, at the time, or do you mean just like over the last two years? Yeah. Now, if you look back on it, I mean, it sounds like one of the things that, you know, there there was a, there was a really great uh, phrase that you used in one of the things where you said, you know, this is going to be really painful, but I, but I have the ability to suffer. Mm-hmm. And, and it, and one of the things that it, it sounded like through this and, and, and subsequently in talking with you is, you know, if we're, if we're kind of looking at it in, in like a medical context where we have the pain scale of, you know, zero is no pain and tens the worst pain you ever have. And it's like, you know, if you're dealing with someone who hasn't really had very much pain in their life, you know, everything's a 10. If you yeah. deal with someone who's had chronic pain or had some, some big things go wrong, their, their 10, their, their 10 on that scale is a lot different. Oftentimes, something like this will recalibrate somebody's, you know, call it their suffer scale or their pain scale yeah, and yeah. say, I've been through worse, you know, yeah. like, like it, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, the things that have improved since this accident, this is, I don't know that I'd necessarily agree it, but agree with it. But my, my wife says that we wouldn't have gotten married if not for this accident and, Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. She, you know, I, I, I was not in no rush when this happened. And then, you know, we got married uh, like a year, I guess, nine months, 10 months after that. I think so. I think I think but I think that's a result of sort of reshaping kind of how I look at the world a little bit. I think that I was living in a little bit more of like, you know, I was 32 years old. I was living sort of like I was 25 ish even if you know we owned a house and like i had a job and everything but i think mentally i was looking at my life as if it was going to go on forever and nothing ever had to change and the things that i valued right then were going to be the things that i valued for my entire life that changed over the course of those 21 hours and you know the the surgeries and recovery and and being housebound for six weeks and and just not being able to use my body like i Physically, I feel like I aged 10 years in one incident where before that I was, I was pretty athletic and running and, and felt good most of the time. And now like if something hurts, it pretty much hurts and never changes. So it, it kind of like, but what that does is it sort of sharpens your focus on how you spend your time and the things that you want to be doing and the things that you feel are important. I, you know, I took an assignment, a magazine assignment the next year that was going to just get me out of the, well, we were still technically in the country, but off into some exotic place just so I could go do that and appreciate that, yes, I had regained the ability to go climb a mountain somewhere and be there. And, and like that story was great for a bunch of reasons, but the, the trip itself was affirming and like every little benchmark that I hit in my recovery was suddenly this like big affirming piece of progress that felt really good. Even if overall I was much farther behind where I wanted to be and where I was before the accident, I started to get practice at appreciating the things that I never would have appreciated before. Physically, I started working on all the little aches and pains that just sort of crop up and and crop up from, you know, favoring one leg. And, you know, I've, I've made some progress there that I never thought I would make just with chronic stuff from basketball and, you know, things that, things that happen. I think that I have uh, sort of applied that idea to a lot of things like, the you know professionally and personally like 
making time. I was always someone that sort of prioritized the story I was telling or the thing I was working on or the project because I do like I value this stuff immensely and I value the the kind of connection that I have with people that that listen to it or read it. I th- I think I did start to value the the people around me a little bit more and start start to sort of consciously work on those relationships a, a little more than I had in the past. And I think that's I mean that's something that's very important, but it's not something that that came naturally or it's not something <laughs> I'd been so focused for like 10 years on surviving in the industry that I'm in because it's really hard that I had forgotten sort of how to be just sort of alive in a person socially and interpersonally to some degree. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's, I guess that's a different story. Yeah. That's a longer no, it's thing. A, it's, no, I think it's, 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 I think sometimes people really underestimate how an event can change you both positively or negatively. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes the, the line between which direction that goes is very fine. And, and a lot of it comes down to how, how you're able to process it and if you're able to process it. And, and maybe on that, you know, you talk um, about this concept when you're talking about kind of the after effects in your podcast about being stuck in the canyon. Yeah. And have you had any sort of thoughts about what it was that kept you stuck in the canyon? Was there like some some particular aspect of it or some particular phase of it or uh, something that you kind of say maybe that you're able to put your finger on? You mean some some aspect of it while I was there? Yeah, uh, well, uh, just some, some, some of the experience. Some, some aspect of the experience where 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 that's the kind of the sticking point, um, mm. or or is it or, or you know as opposed to the just the overall incident? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the feeling of vulnerability that I felt with my leg sticking off in the wrong direction is is something that translates to a lot of different situations. I, I would come to learn, like. If I, things that, that sort of put me back in the canyon are, are like where I find that I'm stuck in the canyon are, are, are times when I feel vulnerable in a similar way. And it doesn't have to be physical. It might be socially, like I'm feeling vulnerable and uh, a little bit rickety or weak, like just in whatever social situation I'm in, professionally or just just kind of like with how you know, my life is going. If there's something where I don't feel like I have control and I feel like the outcome might have long-term consequences, I can end up stuck back in the canyon. It's a, it'd be like smelling a smell that you mm. smelled before and all of a sudden you're right back into, you know, your mom's kitchen when you were a kid sure. or something like that. But it's, you know, I it's it's feeling the same kind of like, disorientation my legs not pointing the right way but in a in a emotional sense that's what can get me one is such a i think it's such a you know clearly that experience that that very specific experience is such a visceral sort of thing that you can put your finger on whereas a lot of these other things are you know way more or or, or way less solid you know but I, i can see where that connection that happens where you just all of a sudden have this thing where you can say that's exactly how I felt right then when I was in this situation and then, you know, kind of being triggered by things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then it becomes a, a like practicing getting yourself out of the Canyon and existing, you know, it, it lasts a couple hours generally, but existing there and saying like, I know I'm going to be okay. I feel this way now it's going to end. Um, and then just kind of, it's like, almost like I said, like, I know how to suffer. I can do this. I've survived worse. Yeah. I survived worse. (laughs) Emotionally, I'm in this terrible place for a while, but like knowing that you're going to leave it and just sort of pretending. I mean, I think there's, if it's not so bad, you can kind of pretend and fake it till you make it and until you get out of there emotionally. If it, if it's, but that, that's a stopgap. Like the, the actual, the actual like processing happens when you don't fake it. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And if not, maybe the Blackhawk will come along and pluck you out. The emotional, what is the emotional Blackhawk? I think a, yeah, like the emotional a dog <laughs> is the emotional Blackhawk helicopter that comes and gets you if your dog comes and yeah, says hi. Hopefully, hopefully it's a lot less mess than a Blackhawk coming in. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's one thing that people always, uh, they always kind of go like, you know, we have this kind of double-edged sword with helicopters is that Man, yeah. you know, we, we love when they come in because it makes our life so much better, but it's like, it's also like a hurricane, you know, coming in and especially in something like a tight little canyon. Oh man. 
and I mean, you guys are cutting down trees, like moving stuff around to yeah. make a just an area. And then I, so actually, one of the one of the most painful things of this of this whole thing was the helicopter just got some stuff in my eye. Mm. Um, you know, they told me not to look at it, not to open my eyes. Yeah, and of course, you know, you're gonna look at a helicopter sure. the first time it comes down. But like, it took a long time to get that little piece of something out of my eye. You know, one of the things that you talk about as well is is that that struck me was a lot of the you know the feelings and the and the when you looked at like the dreams you were having afterwards mm-hmm. and things like that that there seemed to be a lot based around guilt or feelings of guilt and that you know whether that was guilt for putting the rescuers out or whether that was guilt for making uh, Ellie go through this or have to to go through this or your friends go through this any. Any thoughts on on that connection of of kind of why that would be after you know what you know because you would think about the things that would naturally pop out are things like you know the terror or the feeling of vulnerability or the feeling of 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 loss of agency yeah um, so I, I just found that kind of interesting that that would seem to be a theme running through as you described it yeah yeah I I don't know that I ever would have described it as guilt I mean I think when you say that word it's like appropriate but I never would have categorized it that way thinking about trauma and and just sort of like terrible things that happen and the responses we have that are not helpful or that that are helpful but are maybe counterproductive afterwards or years afterwards like most of what trauma is it's like it's kind of like the immune system and like an allergic reaction it's just it's an overreaction to a threat your body thinks it's a threat but it's it's not and trauma i think of as kind of like an allergic reaction to a to a memory you you think you're going through this thing or like on some level you're physiologically responding in the same way because you're remembering it. And I think guilt is almost like part of that response or part of that reaction in that if, if something has happened, if you're injured and you need to be rescued or you're responding or you're seeing something like it's very likely that that you've made a mistake like I did or that something didn't go as well as it could have or that, you know, you're just like on a, in a basic sense, like sorry that you're out there. Like you don't want to be in this situation. And I think that the, you know, all of these responses that we have that are that are counterproductive or, or traumatic, they're designed to keep you from doing it again or to they're designed to steer you differently or you know save your life if it does happen again you're you're trying to your body's trying to learn and your mind's trying to learn you know the subconscious parts of it are, are trying to learn and trying to be ready if it happens again and i think the guilt there is part of the process of keeping you from it's it's just p- keeping you from being that same person and almost spurring on some sort of self-reflection or consequence to what you are going through emotionally right now and what you're causing other people to go through, that feeling sticks with you so much better that I feel like it's it's something that you can't ignore. I mean, I don't remember the pain anymore. I don't remember a lot of the kind of waiting and the boredom and the fear. Like the fear is buried deep in there. But I do remember like when you talk about Ellie and like what I made her go through and and how much I regret that, that is still present. And I think guilt is maybe just like a more durable emotion. Mm. And, and our body is trying to keep us from putting ourselves in this situation again so that we are survive and live and pass on our genes so yeah the the guilt is part of that mechanism i think so have you been back (laughs) no i have been invited back twice both times the surf was really good on the coast that day (laughs) so i went surfing instead (laughs) nice but i will i am going to go back it's it's just like I feel like I need the right people with me. I mean, it's not a small thing. Like yeah. it used to be this thing I would do on a whim, you know, on a random sure. Saturday. It's, I don't think I can pretend that it's the same kind of lark that it used to be. I have jumped off some, some things into water, deep water that I've 
tested thoroughly before jumping though <laughs> that was those are those were big steps i feel like that was a bigger part of yeah. it um that was definitely something that i really loved to do before the accident all right well if you go back let us know we'll be on standby yeah <laughs> <laughs> just to, just to take pictures <laughs> yeah we'll we'll uh we'll leave adequate signage where we went excellent well i thank you for for uh for talking with me today and i really appreciate you sharing this stuff i i think it's it's uh really a very unique perspective to get, I think, both the fact that you went through this, but also that you put so much thought into it uh, has, I think that really helps bring a lot of things, some clarity to them. And, and I think gives a lot of narrative to a lot of the things that we're trying to do that we think have some efficacy with with patients and, and with the people that we're working with. And, you know, even though you were doing them yourself uh, in a lot of cases, I think that really echoes just the importance of, of not only us building up our own resilience for when we get into these situations, but also really hammers home the fact that we need to be doing this every time with, with every patient in these situations, just to kind of help with that processing and help with the, you know, help try to, to end that incident for that individual as quickly as possible so that, that, that the processing can start. Yeah. My pleasure for sharing it. And thank you for being out there, responding, <laughs> going through an epic. I mean, I think one of the most meaningful things that I did afterwards was going to the search and rescue meeting, mm. your monthly meeting, and just having the chance to say thank you to everybody in person was monumental and huge. And I'm sure it happens at a lot of it, meetings. It actually never happens. Um, you're probably one of three or four that have done it over the years in, oh, my, wow. in my 10 years. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's actually kind of interesting as we, we, as rescuers, that's actually part of the, I think, which, which is actually part of the process for us that always leaves things undone is most of the time we go out and we do these kind of big epic missions a lot of times. And then you disappear into the helicopter and we never see you again, or, yeah. you know, someone just goes home and we never hear from them again or, or something like that. So I think that it's actually really rare for us to get that full circle. And even, even with relatively minor rescues, I mean, things like yeah. where there weren't big injuries or it was just, we went and found somebody and walked them back, things like that, that process of closure for a lot of our people, um, we try to do it ourselves where we'll talk about each, each rescue to just kind of say for, you know, cause people sometimes are only involved with one section of it. Yeah. And so, you know, just trying to bring that full circle and give them the story, but we really very rarely ever get the full circle from the the subject coming back and, huh. and just saying, Hey, here's, here's what happened with me. And uh, thanks for being there. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, not to keep going, sure, yeah. you already, <laughs> That's right. uh, but the, I mean, another, another like really big helpful thing that happened was connecting with Robert and Joe, the, the paramedic and the EMT uh, afterwards. I, mean, I can't remember if I reached out to them or they reached out to me, but it was, you know, I was just starting to walk on my own again off crutches and after surgery. And they're just like, Hey, let's get a beer sometime. And we planned it out and found a time. And like just that little connection and just mm. rehashing the event with the people that were there was huge. I mean, they're in terms of making sense of everything, especially having that opportunity to just talk with with these people that I knew knew exactly what I was talking about and could remember the same things that I remembered mm. was was massive. So, I mean, I guess if there is a way, I mean, you have to feel it out with each rescue and who sure. you're rescuing. And but that I, I, I mean, that was that was an incredible part of it. And I still I mean, we I keep in touch with with Robert and we still talk about it and just kind of go through it. Yeah. I think one of the things that we found that's real powerful is even when we get, when we're dealing with a lot of things on our own, it was when we get people together who've been through a shared experience, a lot of times one of the, you know, as we kind of talked about, one of the things that's, that's very difficult is that oftentimes we can't share what's yeah. going on because either the nature of it is such that we, you know, it's not something we want to share with our families and, and bring them into that, that, into that, that sort of damage or potential for damage, or it's something that we just, we just can't really talk about because we're just not there yet. And oftentimes when we get people together who've been through that shared experience, very little has to be said because they were there. Like you say, is yeah. like, you can just, I'm sure with, with when you guys get together, you can just sit there and go, you know, you could just mention a couple of words or, you know, some yeah. kind of thing about, man, I'm, you know, glad I'm not lying in a sked, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and everybody, and we know exactly what you mean, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm like, yep, I, I, I get it, you know, and I think that that is, uh, 
that that ability for a shared experience in a lot of these things is is super powerful and I, it's certainly something that I think we need to look at as far as how can we how can we honor all the things that we have to about confidentiality and 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 just giving people space to to process in their own way but also potentially making that available to say hey you know we we are available i i think there's also sometimes where uh, a real difficult one for us is where we have families mm. uh, where we don't have a we, we may not have the most positive outcome on a rescue and I think that's that's one where there's probably potential for coming together, but I, I think that's it's one that scares a lot of rescuers just mm-hmm. because, you know, we kind of are supposed to be viewed in a specific way and 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 bring certain things to the table and have this be kind of inv- uh, invulnerable and 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 strong and all these things and and I think most of us would would react uh very emotionally in a situation like that. And I think yeah. that that that's something that I think that that sort of is very difficult for a lot of people. And I think, but as healing as it might be, but I think that's one of those things where, again, I think it's, it's really great feedback for us, but it's, it's one of those things we're operationalizing that it it takes a, takes some finesse, I think. Yeah. 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 I have a really happy outcome. I mean, (laughs) yeah, things considered. Yeah. I mean, happy outcomes are great. We love, we love happy outcomes, but, but unfortunately a lot of our business isn't happy outcomes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and in a lot of cases in those unhappy outcomes, um, we don't really have the answers um, because either we weren't there when it happened or there may be ongoing issues, you know, with law enforcement or that where we're just not at liberty to talk about them. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think it all, you know, the processing of it all is very, uh, is is uh something that we're we're challenged with as a community and i think as we as we've looked now more towards opening kind of a broad uh, you know making a bigger tent and and uh and understanding that where stress injuries for first responders kind of ends and where psychological first aid begins is uh you know is way m- more of a venn diagram than a than a you know kind of a hard line you know there's a, there's a big overlap there where you know are we taking care of each other are we taking care of ourselves are we taking care of our subject and it's all kind of it, you know it, i think it's it's much more holistic than we think it is mm-hmm. and and having that you know and it, and it and it goes well beyond the incident um and well beyond just the the people that are there yeah yeah. I mean, shoot, for me, this is a story I tell. For you guys, it's a way of life. <laughs> oh, we got, we got some stories out of it, too. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I, sure. Haven't, I haven't had too many times where I've had to tie myself to a tree to, to not plunge down the mountain <laughs> if I fell asleep, but uh, they're pretty fun. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was me and Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue Ropes Team Coordinator Marcel Rodriguez. This episode was produced by Marcel for his podcast, Rescuer MBS, and brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making ingredients that provide proper nutrition for athletes. More at bobsredmill.com outside. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Integrated Media and distributed by PRX. We'll be back next week.